Forgiveness is man's deepest spiritual need. For apart from forgiveness, man never enters a relationship with God. So if you have forgiveness from God, then even as a Christian, as you walk through the world, are you bringing your sins to the Lord on a day-to-day basis for that cleansing that comes to you day by day as he washes away the dust of the world from your feet as you get them dusty? Are you experiencing the usefulness and the joyfulness and the intimacy with God that comes from daily confession? How about forgiving others? Have you freed others from the bondage of an offence by openly and full-heartedly forgiving them? These are questions I think we need to ask ourselves. The Lord will have us forgive others. Do you? Let's look together at Matthew chapter 6. I want to read the prayer to you and then the two footnote verses, verses 14 and 15, and then we'll go into our study for today. Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Footnote verses. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verse 12 is the petition to which we draw your attention again today. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. The word forgiveness strikes us immediately. Forgiveness may may be the most wonderful word in any language. There is nothing more wonderful to know than that your sins are all forgiven by God. There is nothing in the human realm more wonderful to know that you have been forgiven by someone you grossly wronged or hurt or injured. Forgiveness is a thrilling word. There is an epitaph in a cemetery. It's a large headstone. It doesn't have the headstone, it doesn't have on the headstone the name of the person who's there in the grave. It doesn't have when he or she was born or when he or she died. It doesn't say beloved mother, father, husband, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter. Just one word stretches from one end of the headstone to the other, and it's the word forgiven. Somebody wanted it known that they could die in peace because they were forgiven. And that's all that really matters. Someone said, let me go and soar off a branch from one of the trees that is now budding in my garden. And all summer long, there will be an ugly scar where the gash has been made. But by the next autumn, it will be perfectly covered over by the growing. And by the following autumn, it will be hidden out of sight. And in four or five years, there will be but a slight scar where it has been. 
and in 10 or 20 years, you will never suspect that there had ever been an amputation. Now, trees know how to overgrow their injuries and hide them. And love doesn't wait as long as trees do. I like that. Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. Love is in a much bigger hurry than trees are. Forgiveness is a vital commodity of love. Now, God has said in the scripture much about this area of forgiveness. Forgiveness is man's deepest spiritual need. Mark that down. It is man's deepest spiritual need. For apart from forgiveness, man never enters a relationship with God. Apart from forgiveness, he pays his own penalty for his sin. Apart from forgiveness, he spends eternity in hell. Forgiveness, then, becomes man's deepest spiritual need. That is something he must have if he is to know God, if he is to enjoy heaven. It is man's deepest spiritual need also because it is the only way he is delivered from the anxiety and the pressure that guilt only, that guilt, that guilt of sin brings to bear upon his life. And so, when you come in verse 12 to this, the first of two spiritual petitions in this prayer, you are touching man at the deepest point of his need. Coming to God for forgiveness is the most vital thing of all. We need to ask ourselves some questions. Being that forgiveness is man's deepest spiritual need, have you experienced the forgiveness that comes in Christ? That's the first question. If you have, then even as a Christian, as you walk through the world, are you bringing your sins to the Lord on a day-to-day -day basis for that cleansing that comes to you day by day as he washes away the dust of the world from your feet as you get them dusty? Are you experiencing the usefulness and the joyfulness and the intimacy with God that comes from daily confession? How about forgiving others? Have you freed others from the bondage of an offense by openly and full-heartedly forgiving them? These are questions I think we need to ask ourselves. Forgiveness is a blessed virtue. Now, we've talked about God's, God, God's forgiving us in our last podcast. Today, I want to talk about us forgiving others because the end of verse 12 says, as we forgive our debtors, and then verse 14 and 15 say, if we forgive, we get forgiven. If we don't forgive, we don't get forgiven. And so I want to go to the concept of us forgiving each other. Let me begin by saying this, and I want you to mark this down. There are several reasons why we are to forgive one another. And I'm going to give you a list. Get them down because I think you need to know them. Number one, we are to forgive one another because such is the character of saints. Such is the character of saints. Christians are characterized as those who forgive. Matthew 5 verse 43, backing up to the fifth chapter, we find that the traditional Jewish rabbi taught, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, hate thine enemy. enemy. They taught that the principle was to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But the Lord said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may manifest 
that your you uh, that you may manifest that you are the sons of your father. In other words, forgiving others, blessing those who curse, which is tantamount to forgiveness, loving your enemies, which is the same idea, is all a characteristic that manifests that you are a son of God. It is a characteristic of saints to forgive. We are the forgiven, are we not? Have we so soon forgotten what has been forgiven us? And would we not forgive someone else? As a Christian, when you fail to forgive someone else, you set yourself up as a higher court than God. For God infinitely forgives. And that's idolatry. For you are worshipping yourself. And if you were God, you've usurped his place. Secondly, I believe we are to forgive one another not only because it characterizes saints, but it follows the example of Christ. That speaks for itself. First John 2, 6 says, If we say we abide in him, we ought to walk as he walked. How did he walk? He walked in forgiveness. And that's why in Ephesians 4, 32, it says that we are to forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Christ has established a model. A pattern that the death of Christ and the forgiveness of God through Christ given to us is not only for its own sake. It is for its own sake and beyond to give us a pattern for forgiveness. Thirdly, we are to forgive one another because it expresses the highest virtue of man. I believe man must manifest the majesty of his creation in the image of God when he expresses forgiveness. I believe man most manifests the majesty of his creation in the image of God when he expresses forgiveness. And I believe that's indicated in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. It says, The discretion of a man differeth or differeth his anger. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. I'll repeat that. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. The highest exhibiting of the virtue of a man is that he overlooks a transgression. We are to forgive one another because it is characteristic of saints, because of the example of Christ, and because it is the highest virtue of a man. Fourthly, we are to forgive one another because it frees the conscience from guilt. It frees the conscience from guilt. When there is a need to be forgiven and to forgive, there is guilt. I think of David, who in the midst of an unforgiving situation has all kinds of problems. His life juices dry up. The lymphatic system, the blood system, the flow in his nervous system, the saliva, everything was wrong. He was sick. His bones were waxing old, as it were, and his roaring was going on all day long. There is connected with an unforgiving heart an advantage for Satan, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. A root of bitterness that creates all kinds of binding of the conscience. And so we are to forgive one another in order 
to free the conscience. People who carry grudges and bitterness and who carry an angry attitude towards an individual that goes on and on and on, unrelieved, are literally wounding themselves. Dale Carnegie tells a story about visiting Yellowstone to feed the grizzly bears. Apparently, you feed them from a distance. But they made a clearing when he was there and they piled a bunch of garbage in the clearing. And the guide was saying, now, the bear will come and eat the garbage. And sure enough, the bear came. And the grizzly bear is probably the most ferocious animal on the North American continent. The only animal that can maybe stand off a grizzly bear would be a Kodiak bear or a wild bison that was really infuriated. But a grizzly doesn't have a lot of enemies. It pretty well dominates its own sin. And this grizzly came in and started to eat. And they don't like anybody intruding on their territory. The guide was saying. And all at once, this little black and white thing came across the clearing, a skunk. And the skunk just stuck his nose right in there where the bear was. Just started eating and enjoying, having a wonderful time taking the bear's food. Now, Carnegie said that he noticed the skunk was very impotent and the bear didn't do anything. Together, they shared the food. Carnegie said, why? The answer is simple. The high cost of getting even. The bear did not even pay the price. The bear did not want to pay the price. Smart bear. Smarter than a lot of people I know who get themselves messed up with a toxic and toxic way of life. Heart attacks and colitis because they hold a grudge. Dr. McLean has written a book in which he has one chapter titled, It's not what you eat, it's what eats you. That's the real issue. Why should we forgive one another? First of all, because it characterizes saints. Secondly, it follows the example of Christ. Thirdly, it's the highest expression of the virtue of man. And fourthly, it frees the conscience from guilt and brings many diseases of the mind and the body. Fifthly, we should forgive one another because it delivers us from chastening. It delivers us from chastening. Where there is an unforgiving spirit, there is sin. And where there is sin, there is chastening. And every son that the Lord loves, he scourges and chastens. Hebrews 12 says, and in 1 Corinthians, their animosity towards one another and their bitterness and their party spirit and their factions have turned the love feast into something horrible, something very vile. And because of that, many of them many of them were weak and sick, and some were even dead. And the Lord had chastened them to that point for a lack of a proper love relationship to one another. Now, all those are important reasons why you should, for, you should forgive one another. But there is one more <coughs> that's more important than those five. 
we are to forgive one another because if we don't, we don't get forgiven either. And that's in our passage. Verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6. And many people do not understand these verses. And I have to say this to you. For those of you who haven't been there, you have you have you you need to listen to the last podcast to have the full meaning of what I have to say today. Because I can't repeat all that background, but I'll try to give it to you just as briefly as I can. Remember this. In this prayer, we are focusing on the first petition regarding man's spiritual need. The first three are regarding God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In other words, before you ever get to yourself, God has to have the rightful place in your prayer. You will need, you will immediately sidestep all of your selfish desires by the time you filtered through the depth of those first three petitions. Then you acknowledge that God is the sustenance of your daily bread. You wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have a spiritual life with needs if you didn't have a life to start with. So he has to take care of that. And then you come to the spiritual and here you are dealing immediately with sin. God is the primary place and then man's need, spiritual and physical. And as we come to this verse, we have shared with you, there are four things that you need to know. The problem, that sin, expressed by the word debt in verse 14 and verse 15, the word trespass, the provision forgiveness twice in verse 12 twice in verse 14 twice in verse 15 the problem is we are sinners and the sin brings guilt and condemnation the provision is forgiveness based on the ground of christ's death now what did we say about forgiveness we told you there were many kinds of forgiveness two remember the first was judicial forgiveness and the second was parental forgiveness. If you don't understand this, you'll never be able to interpret these verses. Judicial forgiveness is that forgiveness God grants to an unregenerate, unredeemed, unsaved individual who comes, puts, his, puts faith in Christ. God imputes to him the righteousness of Christ, declares him eternally righteous, drops the gavel, forgiven declared righteous, justified forever. Judicial forgiveness embraces all of eternity and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. It is settled, it's a settled act forever. Once and for all. All your trespasses totally forgiven. We went over that in detail two weeks ago. And the question comes up, if I'm judicially forgiven and every sin is under, <clears throat> is under the blood of Christ, past, present and future, and everything is taken care of forever and ever, and that can never be altered, what am I doing saying forgive us our debts? Maybe this is a 
prayer for an unbeliever, you might say. No, it's not. What are the first two words in the prayer? Our Father. You are not talking about an unbeliever here. You have to be in the family to even get into this prayer. That is how you are to pray as a believer. You say, well, if I'm a believer and all is judicially cared for in the fact of salvation, why am I asking forgiveness? And this is what, this is what we call parental forgiveness. This has not to do with the fact of salvation. It has to do with the joy of it. And we use that very magnificent and comprehensive illustration in John chapter 13, where Jesus says to Peter, you took one bath. You don't need to take another bath. All you need is your feet cleaned through the day. God has birthed us in the righteousness of Christ. All he wants to do is dust off the dirt on our feet that we collect as we walk through the world. One of one is a positional forgiveness and the other is a practical one. One deals with our standing and our state before God. The other deals with our living in the world. The Lord dusts off our feet. It's just like John said in 1 John. We have fellowship with the Father, but I'm writing these things unto you, not so you can have the fellowship. You're already in the fellowship by salvation, so that your joy may be full. It is joy and usefulness productivity and your spiritual welfare that is the issue here and the believer when he becomes saved judicially redeemed and all is covered doesn't then stop facing sin because insensitive become insensitive to sin ignore sin but rather keeps on confessing sin first john 1 9 as a way of life we entered by faith did we stop faith at that point and abandon it no we walk by faith we enter by confessing sin we don't stop we continue it's a way of life first john 2 says that if we love god and we are in the lord we will continue to love our brother we will continue to be obedient to god's laws you back up to first john 1 it's saying the same thing if you are truly a believer You'll continue confessing your sin because the sensitivity to sin will be far greater than ever it was before you were saved. Or before you were saved, for before you were saved, you walked in darkness and nothing was revealed. When you became a Christian, you walk in the light and everything is made manifest, even your sin. So what he's talking about here is that, is that foot washing that the Lord does as he cleanses us day by day, purging and purifying, not to bring us salvation, but to make the intimacy of that fellowship all it can be. If a child, one of my daughters, sins against me and against the standards that I establish, they are not thrown out of the family. They don't have to do something to get back in the family, but they need to come and make some things right so the intimacy of a family fellowship can be manif can be maintained and restored. That's what we are talking about. And so we saw the problem with sin. The provision was forgiveness. And thirdly, the plea was confession. The very plea and the petition is that we confess our sins, that we acknowledge it to God. And I'm saying to you, 
If you are not doing this, you are short-circuiting your spiritual effectiveness. It's just that simple. You say, when you say confess, what do you mean? What I mean, confess. It is to agree with God about your sin. It is to acknowledge your sin. It is to repent of your sin. It is to forsake your sin. And it is to thank God for forgiving it. And anything less than that is not true confession. I agree with you, God, about my sin. And as soon as you do that, you free God to chasten you without any impunity. You realize that because you just admitted that you deserved it. And God has the right for you to admit that. Because when people don't admit their sin and God chastens, they often blame God. That's why Joshua said to Achan in Joshua 7, 19, Give glory to God and confess your sin. In other words, God's going to judge you, Joshua said. You might as well admit that you deserve it first, so God will still be glorified. When you acknowledge your sin, you glorify God. When he chastens as one who has had the right to do that, and then you are to repent of it, turn from it, and you are to forsake it, and then to thank God for forgiving it. That's the thing God wants you to do as a daily part of life. First John 1 John 1.9, we are the ones continually confessing our sins and we are the ones being forgiven. Present tense, it's a way of life. Now, what are we going to learn then as we examine the fourth point? We've seen the problem is sin, the provision is forgiveness, and that is only the beginning because the plea is for confession. But there is a prerequisite, and the prerequisite is forgiving others. An utterly significant prerequisite. Verse 14 and 15 elucidates the statement at the end of verse 12 as we forgive our debtors. Now think with me. The prerequisite is to forgive others. I've, forgiven you five, I've given you five reasons at the beginning why you should forgive one another. Five reasons to be forgiven, the character of saints, the example of Christ, the glory of man, the freedom from of conscience, deliverance from chastening, and finally right here, in order to receive forgiveness ourselves, we must forgive others. Let's look at verse 12. You could translate it, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven. The idea is before we ever seek forgiveness for our own sin against God, for which we are indebted, before we ever do that, we already have forgiven those who have sinned against us. That's pretty potent stuff. First we forgive, then we are forgiven. That's the order it is right here. That's another reason it can't be talking about an unbeliever. Because an unbeliever has no capacity no spiritual virtue to do an act of forgiveness by what he would earn, by which he would earn forgiveness. It's talking about a believer because we come to get our feet washed each day before we bring our sins to the Lord and say, Lord, cleanse me again and use me. We've got to be sure that we are we've forgiven others. That's the prerequisite. Trace your steps back. For a minute, you look at your life, you say, I go to church all the time, I read the Bible, 
I listen to tapes, I go to seminars, but I don't have the joy that I ought to have. I miss out on being used by God. I feel my life isn't all it could be. I get tired of the routine of the trying to get of the trying to get to a certain spiritual standard. And somebody says, you need to pray more. And so I try that. Or you need to take a class on spiritual growth. And you need to read your Bible. And you, you are not reading the word enough. Or here is a book you've got to read. Or go through all this data. Go through all this material and all these searches to find where the spiritual reality is missing. And maybe the answer is very simple. You are not confessing your sins. You are not going to the Lord and saying, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge it. I admit it. And here are the sins. Purify me. And you say, I'm doing that. I've done that. I go to the Lord. I say, Lord, I've got sin in my life. And here it is. Some people I've met even have a list. They write it down. And I see, and I still don't have the joy. And I still don't have the fulfillment. And I still don't see what I ought to see in my life. You haven't backed up enough. One more step. Maybe all that confession isn't cutting it because the Lord isn't giving you release from those sins. Because you've still got something cooking with somebody else that you haven't forgiven. And you have short-circuited your own spiritual welfare. That's what Jesus is saying. It isn't my words. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we know that he knows. Begin to examine your life. Begin to examine your life at that level. I know I'm examining my life, examining my life there. Oswald Saunders says, Jesus is here, stating is simple and God dealing with his children. He deals with us as we deal with others. He measures us by the yardstick we use on others. The prayer is not forgive us because we forgive others, but forgive us even as we have already forgiven others. That's the idea. He's doing, he's going to deal with us as we deal with him. Another illustration that is very clear. Jesus said this, give and it shall be given to you. In whatever measure you meet out, that's exactly how God will meet it out to you. Hmm. Luke 6. How about this one? Sow sparingly. Reap sparingly. Sow bountifully. Reap bountifully. God deals with us the way we deal with him. Whatever we invest in his kingdom, we receive a return on. If we harbor sins and grudges and so forth, we cut, off, we cut ourselves off from the blessedness that can accrue to us because of those things. You have been taught so many times that you are to give. You invest with God. You receive a return on it. The same thing is true on your confession of sin and seeking forgiveness. God deals with you the way you deal with others. And maybe the short circuit in your spiritual life is just because, is just that you have some people that you are holding bitter resentment or a grudge against and it's constant even the jew knew this in 200 bc the jew said forgiveness of your neighbor's wrongdoing means that when you pray your sins will be forgiven too they knew that 
they could understand that spiritual principle. The Talmud, the rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament says, he who is indulgent towards others, faults towards others' faults, will be mercifully dealt with by the Supreme Judge himself. What about your life? Are you forgiven? Because if you are not, if you are not God's, if you are not, God's not going to forgive you. Excuse me. You are going to be going through the world with muddy feet. Judicially, you are justified and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, but the joy is gone and the intimacy isn't there and the usefulness disappears. Now you say, well, if I have a grudge like this with someone, how do I take care of it? Three steps. I think they are practical. Number one, take it to God as a sin. That's where it starts. Take it to God as a sin. Lord, there is this person and this is the way I feel. And it's a sin. I admit it and I'm sorry. And I acknowledge it and I repent of it and I forsake it. That's where you start. Step two, go to the person. Tough. I'm only telling you this so you can know spiritual joy. You make the decision. What you want to forfeit to harbor, your judgment and your grudge. Go to the person. You say to them, I want to seek your forgiveness. I've had people do that to me many times and see the freedom that comes. I may have already forgiven them. I may not even have known I did anything by which they, they were offended, but go to the person. Third thing, practical stuff. Give the person something you value very highly. It's, very, it's a very practical approach. Let me tell you why. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there, that's where your heart will be also. You have a grudge against somebody or a bitterness, and maybe it's somebody in your family or out of your family or somebody in the church, whatever you hold against them, whatever you hold against somebody else is to be dealt with by number one, taking it to God. Number two, go to the person. Number three, give them something of value. And I'll tell you this, you put something of value, something that is precious to you in their hand and your heart will go with it and it will change the way you feel about them. But when you give them the gift, then you really begin to express the liberty in your spirit. There is no joy like the joy of giving. That's what the Lord is saying to us here. Confess to the Lord all you want, but you are not going to get the freedom of forgiveness until you've dealt with the human level first. Let's see this in several other passages and then I'll be done. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. Just going to pinpoint the principle. We don't have time to go through them in detail. Blessed are the merciful. Tremendous statement. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In other words, if you want to receive mercy from God, then you must be merciful. It's a principle of spiritual life. People in Christ's kingdom are merciful. They will bear the insults of evil men and their hearts will reach out in compassion. 
that is in that context that is that has a much broader meaning but i don't want to get back into that you want mercy you give mercy let me show you another one chapter 5 verse 21 you've heard it was said of them of old you shall not kill and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment in other words their teaching that's the Jews teaching says and it certainly is true but it does it wasn't all that true because it didn't go as far enough basically saying don't murder and you're okay but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, and by that, by the way, that is an untranslatable epithet. It's like saying, um, well, it's, it's more of a tone of voice than it is a word. You might you might be saying something you brainless stupid idiot, just really upset, untranslatable um, um, epithet. When you say that to someone, or you say you fool, you have stepped into a very dangerous category, very dangerous category. Why? Verse twenty three <clears throat> of chapter five. Therefore, if you bring your gift. To the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift go your way and be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift and agree with your adversary quickly the point is the same the context is a little different as we saw in our study of it but the point is the same you cannot come offering to god some sacrifice to deal with your own spiritual life until you've gotten it right with somebody else. Go away and get that right. Some of you go to worship the Lord in your various churches every Sunday. You can receive instruction, but you can't offer God worship because he won't accept it. You go and offer God worship you said, Lord, I want you to know I praise you. Lord, I want you to clean me up today. You are going to leave just like you came because you've got relationships that are unresolved and you're unforgiving in some situation. Therefore, you forfeit true worship. Leave the altar. Go back. Get that straight. Then come back. And so you really can't worship God on Sunday and you can't have your sins dealt with, but you can be instructed to begin the process that will make that a reality. That is some potent stuff. How many of us are in church every Sunday raising holy hands before God, screaming and crying and worshiping? Think about it. If you have unforgiveness towards another person, your worship is not being accepted. Who am I not to forgive somebody else? Who do I think I am? Well, God says, I certainly can't forgive you. 
who do I think I am? Psalm 23 says, Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because I have to have mercy all my life long because I sin. And if God is so merciful, without his mercy ever being diminished, who am I to be unmerciful to any, anyone? No wonder so much of Christianity is short-circuited in its power. So many unresolved conflicts with people. So go away from the altar until you get your life right. If you regard iniquity in your heart, Psalm 66 says, The Lord will not hear you. If you are harboring something, he won't hear you. James says it again. It isn't just in the psalm. James says it. It's not just in the Gospels as well. James 2.13 For he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. You put yourself in a chastening position. The Lord will really uphold his chastening if you are not merciful to others. I mean, every one man, everybody manifests the same weakness in different ways. Let's be forgiven. Someone lived in the South Seas, Robert Louis Stevenson, and it was his habit with his children to gather them around him every day. At the close of their little discussion together, they would say the Lord's Prayer, as he calls it. He began to repeat the Lord's Prayer on this day and got halfway through it, and he arose and walked away. At that time of his life, his health was rather precarious, and so his wife assumed he was feeling ill. And she went to him and she said, Is there anything wrong? Only this, he said, I am not fit to pray this prayer today. I guess that's where it starts. With a recognition that you are not fit. Don't come asking for forgiveness that you are not willing to give. Matthew chapter 18 will provide us with a final look to illustrate this tremendous truth. Matthew chapter 18, 21. The whole text prior to this, by the way, down to verse 15, deals with the same issue, but we don't have time to go into it. Where somebody has sinned and you go and seek reconciliation and then you take somebody with you and then you tell it to the church and it's dealing all with sin. The whole thing and forgiveness. And so Peter, in response to what the Lord had has said about sinning, about the sinning brother in the church and all, Peter says, well, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The rabbi is taught three times. Peter said seven times. Must have thought he was being magnanimous. Shall we double the rabbinic tradition plus one? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee three, three. I say not unto thee seven times, but seventy times seven. That's infinite, infinitely. Why? For we are to forgive as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And how has he forgiven us? 490 times. Because if you hit 491 before you die, you're in real trouble. He forgives infinitely. That's what our Lord is saying. Then he says, let me illustrate it to you. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, likened unto a certain king who had to take account of his servants. When he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
Now, let's stop here for a second. This guy that was brought to the king was a real rat. He was the worst kind. 10,000 talents is so much money that it's very hard for us to conceive. And he owed 10,000 talents of it. You say, well, how could a servant owe, ever owe that much? He probably stole the crown jewels and sold them. Lost it all in a bad investment. Somehow, he was pilfering from the king's treasury to become indebted to that point. Is absolutely inconceivable at that time in history. The 10 million, that 10 million dollars would be beyond anybody's capacity to even understand. The guy had been robbing the king systematically. Verse 25. He had nothing to pay back. He'd blown it. So in verse 25, he said, well, sell, the king said, sell them off as slaves and make a little money. And that would be about all he'd get. In verse 22, verse 26, the servants therefore, the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. The guy was really not smart. And you know your reaction normally would be, you can't pay me back. You'd be infuriated. The king would be, you, you, if it was you, you'd be infuriated. You may have somebody that's holding out a couple of thousand on you, you know. But guess who the king is? Who does this king represent? God. Guess who the servant is? All of us. Did we owe a debt we couldn't pay? Yes, we did. And he forgave. Why? Because he's compassionate. How could anybody forgive anything as astronomical as that? Let's see more about this servant. The same servant in verse 28 went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And how much was that? Three months work? Peanuts, nothing. He went out. This servant that had just been forgiven $10 million in our money, as of probably even more than that, if you value it correctly, went out and found a guy who owed him three months' work. He grabs him by the neck and says, Take, takes him by the throat and says, Pay me what you owe. And the fellow servant fell down on his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And this servant could have paid it because it wasn't a lot of money, but he, he would not. So he cast him into prison till he could he should pay the debt. Now he wouldn't be able to pay the debt while he was in prison because he wouldn't be able to work. But that shows you the evil of the man's heart. So when the fellow servants saw what was done, they were sorry and they came and told unto their Lord all that was done. The rest of the servants went and reported back to the king what this guy had done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, Oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I, had, as I had pity on you? And this, his Lord, was angry and delivered him to the inquisitors until he could pay all that was due him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also 
unto you, if you from your heart forgive not everyone his brother his trespasses. That's the picture, people. That's the picture of someone who wants to take all the forgiveness God can give, but isn't willing to give it to somebody else. Do you see yourself in there? You hold grudges? Or you have... Have you so soon forgotten? Are you so ill-memoried that you can't remember the mercy that you have received? Thomas Manton said, There is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves, for they know how gently God has dealt with them. Listen to me, people. One of the reasons you need to acknowledge your sin as it exists and confess it by name on a constant basis is that you will be constantly reminded what a sinner you are, how constant his forgiveness is, and thereby, in the midst of that reminder, you will be more prone to forgive others. But as you fail to acknowledge your own sin, as you cover it up and not deal with it, you not only will lose your intimacy, lose your joy and the fullness of usefulness, but you will find yourself becoming unforgiving to others because you are not being honest about what God is forgiving in your own life. Lord Herbert, I think, um, saw it somewhere, put it very well, he said, he who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. What have we learned? We have a problem. It's sin. God has a provision. It's forgiveness. The Lord makes a plea. Confession. There is a prerequisite. Forgiving others. An unforgiving Christian is a contradiction. A proud selfish, weak-memoried creature who has forgotten that his sins have been washed away. Learn to confess, beloved. And before you confess, learn to forgive. God bless you. Lord of mercy, without you we can do nothing. Help us. Teach us not to quench or grieve your spirit by not forgiving others, by not confessing. In Jesus' name, Amen.